Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and my guest today is Mary Jo Sharp, who teaches at Houston Baptist University in my hometown, Houston, Texas. I am a Houstonian in exile in Dallas. <laughs> and uh, and she's here to talk about what she does, and I guarantee it's a surprise. So, Mary Jo, tell them what you do at Houston Baptist and 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 why you're visiting Dallas and why you've got on the te- why we have you on the table podcast. You, ah. Your professional role is you are an apologist. A apologist. Now that yeah. doesn't mean. You're sorry, right? <laughs> yeah, actually, when I went to study apologetics, my my dad he was, he likes to tease, and he said, "Well, it's about time Christians start apologizing." <laughs> dad, that's not what it means. <laughs> yeah, so well, let's. I mean, most Christian, many Christians know this, but some don't, and certainly other people don't. So, what exactly is that rare breed of? person that is an apologist. What exactly are they? Yeah. Hmm. That's an interesting question. Well, the word apologia comes from um, 1 Peter 3.15, mm-hmm. and it's in that passage where Peter's addressing a group of persecuted Christians, and he's reminding them not to fear man, but mm-hmm. to set in their hearts to depart Christ as Lord. And he says, always be prepared to give a defense, mm-hmm. and there's your word that we transliterate to apologetics, That's right. to make a case. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, what case are we making, he further says, for the reason of the hope that is in you. So our hope in Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead, right? So apologists are making a case either defensively against objections Mm -hmm. that come at the Christian faith, Mm -hmm. or we're making a positive case for belief in the existence of God. Yep. The term apologia, we're in in my world, the Greco-Roman world, uh, is a technical term for, for, as you say, making a case for stating a defense, for presenting evidence for what you believe, et cetera. So, So you go around talking about Christianity. But it wasn't always so, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, 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 how does a girl like you end up in apologetics? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> well, it's funny because people hear my name Mary Jo, so mm-hmm. they typically think I'm from somewhere in the Bible Belt, uh-huh. and I was born and raised a Christian, right? So you got to be from Mississippi. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I'm actually from uh, the Pacific Northwest. I'm from Portland, Oregon. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I was raised outside of church. Uh-huh. I did not have a Christian upbringing. In fact, my parents had left the church themselves when I was too young to really remember. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, my view of Christianity growing up was what I saw on TV mm-hmm. and in the movies. It's pretty shallow, in yeah. fact. So, yeah. And I kind of didn't know why you needed religion mm-hmm. or why you needed God and and I had a little bit of distrust going on with mm-hmm. what I saw because there was money involved and uh-huh. people giving tithes, but I didn't know what that was all about. So um, anyway, I, as a, a later teenager, I, I mean, I had been raised on a steady diet of science shows, mm. um, like In Search Of and Nova and mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, my mom was a fan of the musical arts, and so I'd gone to many symphonies mm-hmm. and musical theater. So I had a rich cultural background, but I came to a point in my older uh, teenage years where I realized that I didn't really have a, a reason to think that I mattered. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, there was a high school band director hmm. who I greatly admired, mm-hmm. and he was a Christian. Hmm. And he he had never shared his faith with anyone. Mm-hmm. 
I'm the first person that he really felt a strong burden mm-hmm. to talk to about belief in God. So mm-hmm. my senior year, right at the time when I'm starting to think about uh, meaning and purpose in life, mm-hmm. uh, he comes along and in my senior year, he gives me a NIV one-year Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he gives me the baton that we used to, uh-huh. that he used uh-huh. to win the state band contest uh-huh. with. It was pretty uh-huh. cool. If uh-huh. you know what a baton is, yeah. that's what your yeah, yeah, sure. band director waves around. Uh-huh. And uh, anyway, he said, when you go off to college, you're going to have hard questions. Hmm. And I hope you'll turn to this. Hmm. And I read that Bible hmm. cover to cover. In fact, I didn't stay on the one-year plan uh-huh. because it really wasn't what I expected. Uh-huh. wasn't what I was seeing in Hollywood uh-huh. or on TV. Mm-hmm. And reading that Bible brought me around to belief in God, but it wasn't until I went off to college and I heard the gospel. Hmm. I actually heard um, my position as in need of a Savior Uh that I understood and was willing to trust Jesus and commit to Him. So you really were the beneficiary of what we sometimes call friendship evangelism in many ways. I mean, this person had built a relationship with you in the context of of working with the band and, and in the midst of the trust of that relationship took a chance in some ways. Yeah. And uh and boom, changed your life. Yeah, and it's really neat um in talking with him now. I've kept up with him. He's a professor at a university and he tells the same story but from the you know the the opposite, opposite side, side yep. about um you know being careful about, you know, giving mm-hmm. your testimony to kids and he uh-huh. said he actually told me that um when he gave me that Bible, I didn't respond well. Uh-huh. And he thought that um, I might cause him some trouble over <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that testimony yeah. that he gave. Uh-huh. So uh, I think it's interesting how we both perceived that that uh-huh. one moment in time. Interesting. So. Huh. so, okay, so you went off to college and obviously found uh, an answer in Jesus and then and in, in the coming to faith. And then, but that doesn't explain, I mean, a lot of people come to Jesus without ending up being apologists. So, <laughs> so what's part two. Oh, that's great, because after becoming a Christian, I rapidly got involved with ministry, mm-hmm. uh, youth ministry, helping out. Uh, met my husband. He became involved with ministry as well. Uh, we land into a youth ministry position mm-hmm. as a married couple. And when I start noticing in the church that what I'm reading in the Bible uh, is not consistently displayed in the lives of the believers. Well, imagine that. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. But being that I'm not, um, you know, I'm not raised in the church and I don't have any deep understanding mm-hmm. of um, sin, mm-hmm. I, I begin to question, well, does anybody really believe this? Because mm-hmm. I saw so much ugly mm-hmm. and, you know, not just towards us, but towards each other. And so it caused me to begin to have emotional doubt. I would say it was mm-hmm. emotional doubt. Mm. But that led to intellectual questions such as, well, why do I believe in God? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have a response like, I believe in God because of X. Now, I do believe I had a real experience. Mm-hmm. But what I've noticed is that experiences fade over time. Hmm. You know, it's hard to remember what it was I did back then mm-hmm. and why I did it. So mm-hmm. that fact of not the experience fading, not having anything to, um, you know, really say this is why I believe in God, not having that foundational like evidence, um, I began to say, well, I'm not sure if there is a God, and hmm. I need. But I, for some reason, I decided that I needed to find the answers, hmm. and I needed to look at both sides. Hmm. So it wasn't just enough to go out and read like all the new atheist material to see all the arguments against right. 
I had to hear what the rebuttals were as well. And mm -hmm. so I started listening to debates like William Lane Craig. Mm -hmm. I started, uh, I read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Mm -hmm. And I came back around to a point where uh, the arguments for Christianity seemed to make uh, the best sense to me. You know, mm -hmm. those arguments brought me back around to belief in God. And then I thought, oh my, if I had these questions, I'm sure a lot of other people in the church have them. Mm -hmm. They're just not talking about them. Mm -hmm. Because I'd never heard anybody talk about doubt before in the uh -huh. church. Interesting. So then I taught a class on it in my church. I just created a class based in a survey. I was uh -huh. surveying church members as they were leaving worship, like, what, of these topics, what interests you? And so uh -huh. I built a class around that. Oh, wow. And so eventually you went and I take it got training in that area and so, um, mm -hmm. and then landed at, at Houston Baptist. I did. Yeah, with a whole crew of people, by the way, who are there. I mean, I, the, there are lots of people who teach there who, you know, Craig Evans, is, a, for example, is a very, very good friend. And, and uh, there's just, you've, you've built a really solid faculty that covers a wide variety of areas in terms of, of what you do. So yeah. it's, 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 a, it's been exciting to see, particularly since it's in my hometown. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great place. We yeah. have apologetics right there in the middle of the country as well. Exactly. So you're here to talk to us about, about conversations, really, and in, in doing apologetics in the sense of how we engage and how we engage with people whose worldviews are different than ours, that kind of thing. Um, and you're also uh, going to help us think through um, how we deal with the culture that's around us that claims a certain tolerance but really doesn't uh, reflect it. So we kind of want to work through uh, those two parts. and and. Um, uh, your approach represents something I'm pretty familiar with because I've just come from a weekend myself of doing apologetics with Greg Kokel, who, yeah. who is a common friend. And, uh, and, and the whole idea of rather than debating as we engage in apologetics, engaging and asking questions and drawing people out. I call it uh, getting a spiritual GPS on someone. Okay? You <laughs> That's know, great. That the, I, I say there are two rules at the beginning. You get a spiritual GPS on someone and you turn your truth meter down so it doesn't hit tilt. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I got you. <laughs> That's a good so, way of saying it. And so, so the point here is, is that I really sit to listen and figure out the way in. So let's talk a little bit about that for a minute. Yeah. You know, most people, when they get the opportunity, when the door finally opens, they have a chance to talk about Christ. They get a little excited. Yeah. And, um, and in the midst of getting excited, I say, all right, now I'm going to stand up for God and make the case. And they tend to, to uh, almost like a bull in a china shop, you know, just roll in and try and control the discussion and that kind of thing. And you really have a different, I'll say, strategy. Coco will call it a different tactic. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Um, in, in dealing with this, uh, what how, how do you advise people to, to walk into those conversations, and what should they be seeking to do in starting off? Yeah, the, I do sound a lot like Greg Coco, yeah. by the way, in his yeah. book Tactics. You're right. He asks a lot of the same questions. So um, one of the, I, I always call this like conversational apologetics. Mm -hmm. My goal um, before I roll into a conversation mm -hmm. is to actually care about people. Mm -hmm. You know, the first thing that I want to demonstrate to a person is that I care about them. Mm -hmm. So my the what we're about to discuss is all wrapped up in do I really want to serve this person? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I've had a few atheists tell 
tell me that they felt like Christians came in and made them a Jesus project. Uh-huh. Like they just wanted to throw their points at them, right. and then if they weren't ready to accept those points, then you know they just walk away, mm-hmm. um, and that makes them feel like a project rather than a person. Right. So um, I want to try to avoid that sort of a situation, and I, I break down um, just having an effective conversation into four elements, mm-hmm. and the first one is knowing what we believe. Mm-hmm. I think people don't talk to other people about their faith because they don't know their faith. Hmm. They um, are not trained in essential Christian doctrine. They don't, they're not comfortable in their Christian skin, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I always tell people, if you talk to me long enough, you're getting Star Wars, the Bible, Lord of the Rings, or the Chronicles of Narnia, that's my <laughs> Take skin. Your pick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what's going to come out yeah. of me, because that's what I talk about uh-huh. and care about. Mm-hmm. So we have to become the kind of people that actually know what we believe and why we believe it. Mm-hmm. See, that's one of the reasons early on in Christianity, I felt intimidated to share my faith with others because I didn't know why I believed it. Mm-hmm. And that's just vital to having an effective conversation where you don't get defensive Mm -hmm. is just knowing your own beliefs. Mm -hmm. So that's the first part, right? Okay. And then the second is to truly listen to others. Mm -hmm. And that's we emphasize that a lot today. Um, It was truly listening to find points of communication because just like you're not going to talk about what you aren't comfortable talking about. Mm-hmm. The other people aren't either. Mm-hmm. You know, if you push them um, into an area where they have no knowledge, they have nothing to talk about with you. Mm-hmm. So I want to find points of communication by really listening to minister to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only am I going to find points of communication with them, um, I'm going to maybe get a chance to hear their story. Mm-hmm. So how did they get to this point mm-hmm. of accepting these beliefs as true? Mm-hmm. Um very important. Yeah, I yeah. tell people, you know, if, if someone hasn't had much exposure to the church, well, there are really two kinds of people, the people who haven't had much exposure to the church and the people who have and have walked away. And so – and but if a person hasn't had much exposure to the church, their perception of Christianity is going to be like what you described earlier. It's going to be what they've picked up in the culture. Yeah. And then I like to say to our audiences in the churches, and how would you like to be that that to be the definition of the Christianity you believe? Yeah. You know, there's a disconnect there. So there's a lot of there's a lot of static to work through in a conversation if a person is coming from that kind of a place. Whereas the person who has come out of the church because in many cases they've had some type of a bad or even traumatic experience in the church, they're coming from a completely different place with a completely different set of needs and they also come with some elements of understanding about what you're going to be talking about. So it's a completely different conversation yeah. in many ways. Yeah, and I like that you pointed that out because if you're coming if there's a person that's coming at you from a Christian experience uh-huh. But it was a hurtful one. Mm-hmm. Um, you can expect that that person may be hostile to the mm-hmm. Christian faith because uh, they had been told that this was the truth. They had been told to trust, mm-hmm. and then a lot of times that trust was greatly broken mm-hmm. within their church experience. And so they um, sometimes they feel like they were swindled, mm-hmm. or you know they were bamboozled. Mm-hmm. There's a good word. And yeah. so you're dealing with you have some back work to do with them because they don't trust the church. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, Craig. Evans, we talked about earlier, did a book a long time ago about historical Jesus studies, and in the first chapter he went through the biographies of the people who tend to be writing in a hostile way about, you know, we can't 
we can't know the historical Jesus. We don't really know about him. Out of the 13 people that he profiled, 12 of them grew up in the church and had a bad experience. Wow. And so, you know, so you sit there and you go, whoa, these are people who are are going, I was hurt by something that happened, and now I'm going, I'm writing so that someone doesn't have to go through what I went through. That's right. basically, and that that's a part of what's motivating them. And you look at that and you go, man, that's amazing. Yeah. And it shows how important our communities actually are, that they be authentic, that they have integrity, that we be careful about how... Uh, about the potential damage that we do to people, because some of that damage can be very, very hostile. Right, which yeah. means that well, there's a truth to be told as far as like propositional truth. Right, but there's also relational exactly. excellence yep. in how we present it. Well, I, and this is what I love about about what you're doing because it because it is this relational element that you know I think I, I like to summarize the evangelistic process or the mission call of the church in kind of this way. We're engaged in challenging people about where they're living. The gospel Gospel challenges people, challenge all of us. Okay, and challenge is uncomfortable for people. They don't like to be challenged. Yeah. But we also have to offer an invitation. Well, I can't have a chance of them hearing the challenge unless they know I care. You know? And so they I like to say they won't care about your challenge unless they know you care. Yeah. And once you earn that space, then people will, might be willing to talk to you about anything. But without that space, you're not going there and you're not getting there. Right. So, so the, this relational element, this issue of tone that comes alongside what we believe is extremely important. And the Scripture talks about it all the time. You're in the passage 1 Peter 3, with gentleness and respect is what that passage says. That's how we're supposed to set Christ's part in our hearts and have a defense within us. So, so. I love the relational emphasis that you have, and I love the call to uh, to walk into a conversation. And my first assignment, should you choose to accept it, okay, <laughs> is to listen. Yeah, is to is to actually get oriented to where the person is coming from, so you begin to get a sense of, all right, what is causing this person to be where they are, and how do I think about addressing that? Exactly, and. Because you've done that, you've listened to them, then you find these points of communication where you can start asking questions. Mm -hmm. And that's the next element that I'll include is, and mm -hmm. this is where you know Greg Kokel and I have right, a lot of similar right. questions. Yes. In that you, when you hear people say things, you ask them, you know, what did you, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. You don't just let it fly by and try right. to answer and respond right away. Well, I don't right. agree with that because, rather, you give them a time to clarify mm -hmm. their statement. Mm -hmm. Because what I have found is that some, you know, sometimes I don't understand what right. they're trying to say, but sometimes they don't understand what they're trying to right. say. So asking, what do you mean by that? Right. You know, that's a, a point of clarifying, helping them uncover, well, when I say that um, Christians are intolerant, what do I mean mm -hmm. when I say that? You know, So it helps them to uncover the truth of their own belief. Right. That helps both of us. That's right. That helps yeah. both of us. And the more you're able... The more you're able to talk about that, the 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 better the grounding is. I mean, I, I see it as a kind of way of drilling down. You're drilling down beyond the surface because one thing that you want to know is, is this person just repeating this because this is the way they engage with Christianity and it's all they've heard? You know, this is the objection. I play this card, and that usually puts people off, and and I can keep them at arm's distance by by saying this. That may be all that they're doing. 
They may not act. Yeah. So, so beyond the question of uh, of what do you mean by that, um, and I know another question that, that Greg likes to ask us something like, and why do you believe that, or or what's behind that? Those yeah. kinds of questions where you actually are drilling down to figure out, all right, where's this person getting this from? Right, and that's I sort of have a process of questions I go mm-hmm. through before I engage answering uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, in responding. I say, uh, what do you mean by that? And my next one's going to be a how do you know that, which is what you were just talking about. Uh-huh. So where are you getting that from? Right, um, sourcing mm-hmm. their beliefs, and that's really important because I think that's where you're going to see a lot of people haven't sourced their beliefs. That's right. They haven't spent that time. Again, you're going to meet up kind of two kinds of people: the people who are simply have absorbed like a sponge what the culture has said about Christianity, and that's what they're giving you. And then when you bro when you probe deeply, you understand that they they say, well, that's just the way. Or that's what I've heard, or that's what I've seen in the paper, or whatever you know. That's what I've seen on Google, whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever you know. The answer is there, but then there are other people who will answer that question, and they'll start using names and books. Yeah, and then you know, different conversation. Yeah, it's, it's going to be different. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Greg Kokel says, you know, sometimes if you encounter persons done has done more work than you, you let them be the expert. That's right. Right, that's so right. that you can learn. Just from Just let them, them draw engage. out and see where they're coming from, etc. I, yeah. I, I really do think. You know, I, like I said, I call it getting a spiritual GPS. You do a lot of That's listening. Great. You're just getting them located on a map so that you have a sense of what motivates them, what drew them in, did they have an experience that gets in the way, you know, all those kinds of features that, 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 that frame what they're telling you, the content of what they're telling yeah. you. It's, it's really what you're after. So, yeah. the, And what's the fourth area? Oh, uh, well, before I move into okay. the fourth area, I would say um, the last question is, why do you believe that, which you brought okay, up. Right. And the reason I want to make sure we, we hit this one is because the why gives you their backstory. Right, exactly. And because we're dealing with a human being made in the image of God, mm-hmm. their story is important. Right. It's important to God. It's important for us to minister to them. So I don't want to miss out on a chance to really know them and why they're at this point. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say, not only clarify for me what do you mean by that, where are you getting this from, but now I want to know who you are, where you've come from, and get that backstory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the fourth area is respond. Uh-huh. And I gave some ideas today about different responses that we can give, because Christians typically have this, well, i got to lay out my testimony, or I've got to give the gospel in this manner. Right. But there's a lot of things that you can discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, you can give, uh, you can point out a problematic statement that mm-hmm. you've heard. Mm-hmm. So I gave an example of a guy who told me he was Buddhist, uh-huh. uh, who was sitting next to me on a plane. Uh-huh. So I said, I didn't know much about Buddhism. Uh-huh. Why don't you tell me what Buddhists believe? Uh-huh. So he tells me there's no right or wrong. Uh-huh. Uh, and then later on, he d- gets into politics. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's already funny. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and he says, like, the war in Iraq is wrong. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay, all right. So, so he obviously a, turned a page. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is a problematic statement for right. his worldview. If he's right. going to claim to be Buddhist, right. then he can't claim something as absolutely wrong like that. Yeah. So I asked him that question. You know, mm-hmm. how does a Buddhist reconcile this? Mm-hmm. And because I pointed that out, he stopped talking and uh-huh. he just kind of looked at me. Uh-huh. And he was figuring out that inconsistency, mm-hmm. that he had an inconsistent worldview. He couldn't say this and then not adhere to it. Right. So I think that's important because it shows people um, if their worldview is livable, mm-hmm. if it makes sense mm-hmm. in the reality of the human experience. Mm-hmm. And his did not. Mm-hmm. So um, that's important. I call that giving people pause. I think Greg Coco calls it, he want to put a stone in their shoe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you just kind of, you just kind of. Uh, 
ooh, wow, what's that doing there? You know, it, it, it kind of is a, and, and people do learn in the midst of those conversations on both sides of the conversation sometimes. But now I want to talk about kind of what frames that conversation, and I kind of want to set it up this way. You know, religion, there, well, the, you know, there's an old line that says there are two things you don't talk about. You don't talk about religion and you don't talk about politics. Ah. All right? So we got them both going these days. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, and part of the reason for that is that religion is such a deeply personal um, element. And, and what our culture has done with religion and religious discussion is to throw up this idea of tolerance, which is a way of talking about um, let's not challenge each other too much in some ways. So um, I know you've given a lot of thought to the way tolerance does and doesn't work in our in our culture and in our society. So I'm just gonna. That's just a, a wide open question. Talk, <laughs> talk to me about tolerance so I can be tolerant or intolerant. What am I supposed to be? <laughs> yeah, actually, there's so many ways we can go with this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the first of all, I want to point out, and you know, I'm be just discussing this today, later mm-hmm. today, with the group that I'm speaking to um, at DTS, mm-hmm. on how tolerance is actually set up by Jesus Himself in the Sermon on the Mount from Luke six, the passage on mm-hmm. um, doing good to those who don't necessarily do good to you. Mm-hmm. Right? This is he he gives a clarion call basically for what we view as tolerance, putting up with others. Mm-hmm. But he goes beyond that. He's not just putting up with people. He says says that you have to do good to those mm-hmm. who persecute you and do mm-hmm. good to those who hate you. Mm-hmm. Um, because he says, what good is it if you only do good to those who do good to you? That's right. And what we're seeing in our current culture is this, this idea of tolerance has shifted. Mm-hmm to where um, we have to accept other people's views, so there's no possibility of doing good Mm -hmm. to those with whom we adamantly disagree with, Mm -hmm. because tolerance is morphing to mean, um, I only do good to those who think like me, Mm -hmm. I only do good to those who act like me, Mm -hmm. I um, I only do good to those who agree with me. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if we go to Matthew 5, 43, Mm -hmm. this is the kind of attitude that Jesus was specifically uh, teaching against, love your neighbor Mm -hmm. and hate your enemy. Mm-hmm. He flips that, right? Mm-hmm. He says, you do good to those whom you disagree with. Love your enemy. Mm-hmm. So I, when I talk about tolerance, I want to root it squarely within the Scripture and Jesus' teaching. Um, and it, he presents the only sort of environment in which hatred will starve. Mm-hmm. And it's a radical, unconditional love, mm-hmm. which is the Christian basis for tolerance, mm-hmm. um, so that's where I start with uh, with Christians. So you start with a you start with a, a biblical view of tolerance, and and I'm sensing in the background there is a challenge to the unbiblical view of tolerance, which is so dominant around us, yeah. which tends to say. Um, uh, if I can, uh, it's almost like the old flag, you know. Don't tread on me. Don't go into this territory when it comes to religion, and don't don't mess with the way people think. And yet, again, because the gospel has challenge built into it, you can't do mission without challenge. It, right. it doesn't happen. So, so how do you do this? So you're really putting together two things that we constantly talk about here as well, which is this combination of what we might call compassion and conviction. You, you, you have convictions on the one hand, but you want to deliver them with a, with, a, with a compassion, with an understanding, with a sensitivity, so you aren't just bashing people where right. they disagree, but you actually are communicating your care for them as you engage. God is a genius storyteller. 
and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Right. And um, well, I, there's, there's sort of a, a groundwork for why intolerance has become uh, like a catchword and, mm-hmm. I, and why it's in the area of religion. Like mm-hmm. we, we don't talk about this. You just have to tolerate, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that goes back to the idea of the sacred secular split that has mm-hmm. become so prevalent in our culture. Uh-huh. So you have that some ideas um, belong in this, like what we would call the upper story. It's a fictitious, story, yeah. you know, two different realms of existence. Mm-hmm. And and in one is where values, all values like religious morals, mm-hmm. things like that are relegated to what we call the sacred realm. And that is private to mm-hmm. the individual and subjective to their view. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this other realm, which is the public realm. Mm-hmm. And the, that's being said as, you know, this is the cold, hard fact realm. Right. So basically anything we can empirically observe mm-hmm. without going too far into that. So um that's that I think is at the basis of this like we don't talk about this we just sort of tolerate mm-hmm. right um, and I think that that sacred secular split has caused us um, to think even Christians to think well I wonder if I shouldn't talk about this because it belongs in the private realm it's the sacred right and we're starting to see that Christians are adopting this view that some things in life are um, public mm-hmm. and religion is not one of those things mm-hmm. and I think that's what causes Christians to be sort of bullied by this idea of intolerance that mm-hmm. if you discuss your beliefs in public, you're not being tolerant of the Muslim. You're not being tolerant of the atheist. So I, I want to make sure that we we have that mm-hmm. uh, understanding that that's going on in the background. We tend to split things up mm-hmm. um, as a society, but what concerns me even more is that this has gotten into the church, mm-hmm. that Christians go and serve their time, mm-hmm. but that's their view. Yep. So they don't want to go push their religion on others, and that's coming out of this sacred-secular split. Yeah, there are two things that are going on here simultaneously. I'm going to see if I can remember them both. And the, and, the, and the one is, you know, one of the reasons why religion has tended to be a taboo subject, there actually was, a, in one sense, a good cause for it, and that was what helped to trigger the Enlightenment and make it work culturally was all the religious war that had preceded it, the people had fought to the death, you know. In in not little wars, you know, one of them's called the Hundred Years' War. I tell people that's a long war. That is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at least a long yeah. scar. That's right, at least a long scar. And so you've got so so what the Enlightenment did is we're going to put a religion out of bounds, so we don't end up in this such terribly hostile space that religion in our recent history has tended to produce. Yeah. Now I now I can understand a society that that reacts that way when. When religion, in the broadest sense of the term, now of course, what's difficult here is that you had the way the faith was handled, but you also had the nationalism and the statism that came with it that actually 
was probably more responsible for the violence than the religion was, although people thought they were fighting over truth. And, and so, so I understand those origins. Um, but then the other thing that happens, and this is the sinister part of it, and I mean that word, uh, and I'm thinking about what T.S. Eliot called chestless people, you yeah. know, that, that we end up engaging the world, but we don't end up reflecting on our values. We don't, you know, values aren't just personal. They are societal. Yeah. And so when you pull that out of the equation and you end up with this vacuum, this, this empty-chested life, no wonder you get chaos. Yeah. That's where we end up unless we talk about what drives us and what we can share in common and what we may differ on that 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 makes that will make us better neighbors. And the only way we can be better neighbors with one another is to have those serious conversations. Yeah. And you know, you brought up T.S. Eliot. Yeah. And that's also in The Abolition of Man mm-hmm. by C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. when the first chapter being called Men Without Chess. Mm-hmm. And what he was reacting to was he he had received a grammar book to review because, you know, of his mm-hmm. profession. And so he's reading through it. Um, and he's noticing that moral relativism is being taught in this grammar book for children, you mm-hmm. know, who are like high school age mm-hmm. and under, without being the, – the students aren't being told that it's moral relativism, mm-hmm. that all statements of value are meaningless, mm-hmm. you know, that's, but that's what's in there. Mm-hmm. So he's saying before the student, before the boy or the girl is old enough to understand that they have engaged in philosophy, mm-hmm. even the potential – to understand this is being cut out of their soul. Yeah. So you're developing like what you said, like T.S. Eliot says, yeah. C.S. Lewis also says, men without chess. So yeah. you, you know, expect of them honor and val- you know, virtue and all these things, um, but you're not going to get it. You know, you kind of laugh at virtue, but then you expect it. Now I grew so. up, I grew up in a high school with, that was very deep in the humanities. As I said, I didn't become a Christian until I was in college. So this is not a Christian school, but it was interesting. In our English class, we were reading stuff like T.S. Eliot. We were reading the poem called "The Hollow Men." That's actually Actually, what the title of the piece is, and 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 the point that was being made. This is in a this is in a secular context. The point that was being made was is that we do need to think about our values and how our values impact people. Yeah. So so at least we were being taught to think about how we're interacting with our neighbors, even in a context of a secular situation. But I went to school. You know, I was in high school in the in the late sixties and early seventies. So. Um, and I'm not sure we're doing as much of that now. Right. And and I actually think we pay for it. We pay for it in our. We pay for it across the board in our in in all our societal rhetoric because we tell people these are spaces into which you may not walk, and yet they are spaces that actually are formative for how people think and act. Yeah. So how can you stay out of that space? <laughs> you can't. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I think this is a problem that has come from um, a lack of critical uh, thinking skills. Mm-hmm. Like we are not teaching critical thought. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm worried that we're teaching what to think instead of teaching critical thought. Mm-hmm. Because on the issue of tolerance, you have to – the reason I start with the scripture is you have to ground the idea of tolerance somewhere. Mm-hmm. Where are you getting the idea that you should tolerate another person? What's the basis for that? Mm-hmm. Well, Christians are going to say, well, uh, I, you know, there's Jesus' teaching like we already discussed, but they're also going to say, well, look at Genesis 1, mm-hmm. um, 26 
six through thirty one, every human being is made in the image of God, mm-hmm. and they share. They have that image equally. They're given mm-hmm. e- so there's there's something about each individual that needs equal respect mm-hmm. that demands that respect. There's something sacred about each person that's been created. In fact, that's what makes life sacred. Right. Yeah. So there's a uh, emphasis there. Not only is there a creation emphasis in that God made them in His image, mm-hmm. but then when He's done, when you get to Genesis one thirty one, He makes a value judgment. Mm-hmm. And he says that his creation's very good. Mm-hmm. So we see that humans have value from being made in the image of God and also from God giving the, you know, making a value statement on humanity mm-hmm. that it's very good. So this is, this is an impetus, this is a grounding, a foundation for why we tolerate mm-hmm. because people are worthy of respect. They're worthy of um, our tolerance towards them mm-hmm. due to the kind of thing that they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a grounding. But if you remove that sort of grounding, you say that human beings are just reducible to their material matter. Mm-hmm. They're a higher order of animal in the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. Now what's our grounding? Now for it's survival of the fittest. I mean, you know, you you create you create the environment for what we're getting, which is tribalism. You know, um, yes. you, you you get every group standing only for what it represents and what it believes, and anything that attacks that is an opponent to be resisted with all possible means. I mean, right. And 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 we actually have that going on in our society on a regular basis now because that's what fills the vacuum. Yeah. Is 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 an intense self interest and self preservation, right? Which um, eats ultimately eats at your society. Yeah, and that's uh, I think that yeah, you hit it right on the head. I mean, we don't get some um, you know utopian society where everybody's viewed as equal. You get more of a survival of the fittest feel. And I think that's one of the great myths is that when you remove a transcendent moral authority, when you remove um, an objective standard of goodness, that people are going to, by instinct, act right and good. And that's not the case. Um, And so I think that that's part of what's underlying this problem with the new tolerance, because it's not really tolerance because it doesn't have its grounding anywhere. It doesn't have a basis, um, like we were talking about, with being made in the image of God. And then the other thing that's very much in play here that's important to, to say at this point is, is that the other thing that, it, that this vacuum doesn't recognize sufficiently is the fact that we tend to be sinful creatures, that what drives <laughs> us to this selfishness is this, is this tendency to sin, to look out for self-interest and that kind of thing. And, and, and so the society uh, the society that thinks that it can be neutral and ignore the presence of sinfulness um, really sets itself on an un, in an in an unstable uh, with an unstable foundation. And the interesting thing is is that the founders of at least our country were very conscious of the presence of sin and sinfulness, which is why they set up a system of checks and balances because they didn't want uh, too few people to have too much power, right? Because they knew they'd abuse it. Yeah. Um, and and so what goes into this vacuum isn't a neutrality, okay? But this kind of of self focus. I actually think oh, I, this isn't supposed to be a political discussion; it's a religious <laughs> discussion. But yeah. but the point here is is that it is the self focus that we tend to fall into by default. If there isn't an accountability to a God who sets my values for me, that then 
puts me up against other people as opposed to being with them and alongside them. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that was the point, and if you get to the third chapter of Abolition of Man, mm-hmm. you know, you, you'd you see that it's the values of some men. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea of we can make ourselves whatever we want, whatever mm-hmm. we please, ends up being that some men make other men what they please. And mm-hmm. it boils down to the man with the biggest microphone mm-hmm. and the most influence. Or the biggest stick. <laughs> or the biggest stick. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it, it, it's an interesting conversation, and I think that um, I do think that one of the areas where where we have really missed it in terms of our public discourse is is misunderstanding. I would say misunderstanding tolerance, which is kind of what you're you're yeah. pushing towards. Yeah, misunderstanding it in that it's not agreeing with every view, right. but that it's actually putting up with something with which you disagree, mm-hmm. right? It's because on the basis of all human beings are worthy of respect and have value, mm-hmm. but you have to ground that. Mm-hmm. You have to ground that human beings have are worthy of respect and have value, and that you have a moral obligation to human beings because of they have value. So public space is going to become contested space, Yeah. okay? But then the question becomes... How do you contest in the space? And, right. And, and so now, putting kind of both pieces together that we've been talking about, on the one hand, there's this probing, this listening, this, this, um, this engagement style that has gentleness and respect tied to it on the one hand. But it isn't that it, it's stepping into a vacuum. There is, there, is, there is a goal in this conversation, and that's a kind of an attempt to gain a kind of mutual understanding about what ought to be valuable to human beings yeah. and what they ought to care about. I, I, I like to say that um, the church has been used to being able to say it's true because it's in the Bible. But what we now have to learn to say is it's in the Bible because it's true. Yeah. And we're contending for the truthfulness of why God puts it in the Bible. That's, right. that's actually what we're engaged in trying to do. And if we can do that well and effectively, we actually do what we're called to do in mission. Right. And that's why you care about the way people think. Yeah. Because you care about truth. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And that's that's why we want to not just present propositional truth, which we can present in any man- manner, like angry, we mm-hmm. can we can look as aggressive as somebody who doesn't believe in God. Mm-hmm. Um, they a person who doesn't believe in God can come off more uh, relationally excellent than a believer when mm-hmm. you just focus on arguing propositional truth. But we have to couple that, like we were saying at the beginning of the mm-hmm. show, especially in such an environment as mm-hmm. we have now, mm-hmm. we have to focus on that relational excellence. Mm-hmm. It has to truly be a about uh, caring about those people, mm-hmm. if we're going to be able to show them that they are, they do have a vacuum or a void going on. Yeah, I, 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 this is so important because I actually think the church has erred significant ways in this area. I think we've done a relatively decent job of trying to defend what we believe, but how we have done it has actually put a lot of people off. Yeah, and in the process, distanced them from from the invitation that we ultimately seek to try and and deliver I, you know I tell people if you do a, if you do such a great job in making the challenge that you that people are interested in the invitation that's not a success yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. right yeah. I mean you and, and the other half of it is is that Jesus does tell us people are some people are not going to like your message you're going to get pushback yeah but don't complain about it you should expect that you right. know, um, you don't complain about it. You should expect that. In fact, I tell he spent the second half of his ministry telling the disciples, "Look, 
Isn't this thrilling? I'm headed for a cross, and you're in the same line. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> right? You know, so, 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 so we have to be prepared for that. But we are to do it in a way that says, God so loved the world, he yeah. gave. And so that tone is to be at the core of what we do. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it's tough because mm-hmm. you know, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount where he's laying out the foundation there of what, what I would call a true tolerance, mm-hmm. which is doing good to those who don't necessarily do good to you. Doing mm-hmm. good to those who don't do good to you. Mm-hmm. That's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sitting here saying, "Hey, you know, we should all go out and be the best people ever." And it's so easy if we just listen to Jesus. That is a very difficult thing to do. That's why he gives us the spirit of God to enable us to do it because it doesn't come to us very naturally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And especially yeah. when you're being attacked or you're being called a bigot mm-hmm. for your views, um, mm-hmm. for traditional Christian, mm-hmm. you know, orthodox views, you just mm-hmm. it's getting harder and harder for people just to kind of keep their cool and not get defensive. Okay. Let's do an example. It's kind of going to be a good way to wrap up our time. All right. Uh, and that is, I suspect that if a person who's a Christian goes out in the culture and, and speaks their mind about where they are and even does it gently, et cetera, they will still be accused of issuing a form of hate speech or, or yeah. something to that effect. So, so what kind of advice do you have for us and w- when you're in that environment and someone plays you know, that card and says, you know, um, you must really hate people because, you know, and then fill in the blank however you fill in the blank and light it because you exclude people or whatever it is. Um, how do you – what kind of advice do you have for people who find themselves dealing with that kind of pushback? Yeah, I think that's a good one to focus on because I actually think part of the problem with tolerance is a redefining of hate speech. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, what do you? <laughs> I'm back to the question. Okay. What do you mean by hate speech? Yeah, let's apply what we've been talking about. Right. Yeah. What do you mean by hate speech? And I want them to. Um, I'm looking for their definition. Mm-hmm. I'm looking. Or what do you mean that I was using hate speech? Mm-hmm. So tell me how in this instance you see this as hate speech, and make the person who's accusing you of it actually bring the evidence Mm -hmm. to bear. This is why it's hate speech, and here's what hate speech is. So you might be pushing them to think about there's a difference between saying, I disagree with you on something, and attaching a motive to that that represents hate. Right. I mean, that's one of the distinctions you want people to make. Right. Because some people have made the equation disagreement, at least in certain areas, equals hate. Right. And it may not. Right. And hate is the, we have to remember hate is one of the most negatively charged words that we can use in the English language mm-hmm. to represent an attitude. So you have to be careful just flinging it around, mm-hmm. right? Just, um, we have to remember that. But yeah, we want, I want them to be pushed back towards where do you get an idea mm-hmm. that hate speech exists at all? Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is important because for me, hate speech assumes a standard of goodness. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a right. standard. This right. is why, how I know what's good, and this speech over here doesn't match that standard of goodness. Okay, now where does that come from? And we're off and running. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's so, exactly right. Yeah. So, so you're you're. It's interesting because you've got a person who could well be a moral relativist. Yeah. Playing this standards card. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Hmm. That's an interesting game. Right. Yeah. So where are you getting the idea that there's something you? 
you seem to be accusing me of something like hate speech that you think has real existence, mm-hmm. but you haven't told me on what grounding you think hate speech is a real thing at all, that mm-hmm. it exists. You can't just say the laws of men mm-hmm. because those can change, mm-hmm. right? Like, they have changed. Yeah. So we need to know on what basis you think this has a real existence. And so you're pushing for the reaction background that if you're going to say this, then you better have some basis for the standards that you set, and now the the conversation can turn. It can turn, yeah, yeah towards can, that standard of goodness. And where does that come from? Right, and I, I talked to who's responsible him, for it? Yeah, yeah, and I talked to him about how Christians believe it's God and how because he is the standard of goodness, we can say there there actually is speech which does not manage that or manage does not match that <laughs> standard of goodness. So there's there's actually speech that robs human beings of the goodness of speech that speech was intended for. So we can say things like this to people, but then you still need to support your view. Well, this has been fabulous, Mary Jo. I mean, I really have enjoyed the time. It's flown by. Uh, we've talked about two very important topics, how to listen to people and how to think about tolerance and intolerance in our time. It's just a beginning conversation on what apologetics is about. I have no apology for bringing you on the air. <laughs> uh, it's been great to have you with us and, and uh, for have you help us kind of negotiate this space. Thank you. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. And we thank you for joining us at the table. We hope you found the conversation fascinating. You hope We hope you'll be back with us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.